0: A couple weeks ago, we mentioned this program, a very interesting and intriguing uh, solution to having water run off your yard. That would be permeable uh, asphalt and concrete. There was a nice piece in uh, one of my local publications from Walter Seifert uh, talking about this, and he didn't feel that he could adequately address the issue, but did refer us to someone who could, and that would be Bernadette Ballix, who uh, knows quite a bit about uh, landscaping and uh, such things that are eco-friendly. And we'd happy to say, uh, at this point, welcome Radio Parallax, Bernadette Ballix.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me to talk about the subject.
0: Well, let's, I'm really intrigued by this idea. We're in, we're in a big drought right now in, in California. It's quite serious, and I guess probably this is maybe no better time than now to talk about uh, the idea of when even a little bit of water falls in your yard, if you have the right kind of permeable uh, surface, it can then soak into the ground.
1: That is true. One of the big reasons to do it is to save that precious water for your own plants and uh, And uh, especially large, deep-rooted trees can really get a hold of that water that's um, being stored in the soil, instead of running off into the stormwater system.
0: Yeah, I don't know what the stats are and how much of the world is currently, uh, you know, concreted and asphalted, but I guess, uh, I think I read somewhere that like in the United States, basically West Virginia is now pavement, I mean, that, that size area, which is pretty considerable.
1: Yeah, there's. I've heard an average statistic saying that in the natural world, about 70 to 75 percent of any like square, you know, acre is uh, is permeable, and in our built environments, it goes down to 20 to 25 percent.
0: Well, and I'm sure all that runoff is creating more hazards for uh, you know, sewage treatment and all of that and probably getting into our rivers. So putting it right to the ground, I mean, the earth certainly has a nice way of uh, detoxifying.
1: Exactly. So the other benefits, in addition to just keeping the water for yourself and not having to, to use as much treated water, uh, potable water to irrigate, is it decreases flooding in our cities. It also improves um, stormwater quality because... Uh, there's an incredible amount of pollutants, um, both uh, fertilizers and toxic uh, pesticides going off into, the, into our uh, creeks and rivers around our neighborhoods um, from our own residential use. And then it also helps limit some of the erosion that's happening because a lot of our rivers are silting up. Um, which is a problem both for the aquatic life as well as for using them adequately for our uses. And last, it also, whatever makes it past the roots of your plants can actually um, recharge our groundwater supplies, which is really important, for example, in areas like Davis that use groundwater for drinking water.
0: Well, Bernard, I was looking at my driveway the other day. I have a Monterey pine, and it sort of amazed me on a a foggy morning and how incredibly efficient it is is basically squeezing moisture out of the atmosphere. The little needles cause it to drop on the ground. But I realize I'm sort of defeating the purpose because once it gets to the ground, I have not permeable concrete there. So what, what could I do about that?
1: You can easily take out some of the concrete in your driveway, either all of it or sections of it, and replace it with something permeable. And there's a lot of different options in that category. You can go from anything like something very inexpensive, like some fine crushed gravel, over to um, uh, concrete pavers. They have, each of the manufacturers has a line of pervious ones, which Mm -hmm. have slightly larger spaces in between them that would allow the water to go down. Um, you can also, depending on the architecture of your house, you could add some brick laid in sand um, or pervious concrete that's poured in place is another option. I could go on and on and on. But. Well, if,
0: if I were to go out there with a glass of water and, and dump it on this, uh, say, a chunk of permeable uh, concrete, would I notice right away that it's just sinking right in?
1: Yes. Yes, I at some of the um, home shows and greener gardener uh, tours in the Sacramento area, we often have a display of a piece of permeable concrete. You can hold that up above a bucket, or and just the water, pour water, and it goes immediately through and huh. it comes out. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, and I'm intrigued by the fact there's asphalt available as well. I mean, you could basically redo uh, an asphalted driveway and it, with some new technology, and that would also uh, work.
1: Yes, it would. Another way to do it, and depending on your situation, not so great for a driveway, but for other areas, walkways, and even our city streets, is to actually add some swales that are not uh, paved, and that can usually run along the contour, and they can slow down the water, catch it. A swale is basically like a ditch, but uh, usually planted and quite elegant, and that allows the water to sink in, and it's a lot less expensive to do than... And paving everything as well and yeah. it allows for habitat uh,
0: let's put a good word here for com- uh, composting shall we when I was a student back in Davis and I understand that you uh, your your company eco landscape is in Davis uh, we got in the habit of composting and that that's been a really good thing
1: It's a great way to help any kind of soil that you happen to have as well as decreasing all the stuff that goes to the landfill It turns out that the state runs. <laughs> to check what we're throwing out into the landfill every year, and the last one happened in 2012, uh-huh. and the number one thing that residents were throwing away was food. About 24% of our garbage is food.
0: Well, we should note a lot of people are fearful of putting, you know, foodstuffs in, into, uh, into a compost pile, but actually I know not just greens, but you can put a lot of other products as well, and and, and and it, and it does fine as long as it's sort of aerated, uh, doesn't compress down, and you get those anaerobes that, that smell bad. As long as you sort of keep it, I guess for lack of a better description, more spongy and open, I, I guess we do better.
1: Exactly. I mean, you don't want to be putting meat or dairy in there because that's just not, not the best way to go. But aside from that, even lefto- vegetarian leftovers can go in there, no trouble at all and you can also do worm um, composting if you want if you live in an apartment don't yeah. have space outside you can have a worm bin you know, under your sink or uh, in a corner and it's amazing those guys are so clean and uh, unstinky, and they eat <laughs> half their weight in food every single day
0: yeah I, I read a book some years back about how what a wonderful thing you could do with worms and i was intrigued i haven't got around to, to doing anything about it but how do i get started
1: All they need is a little bed of shredded newspaper. Uh Uh, You can buy the worms either online or um, find somebody that already has a worm bin and ask for a few. Uh And then you just put them in there, and the newspaper needs to be about as wet as a damp sponge, so just lightly moistened. Um, You need a nice thick layer, a couple inches on the bottom, and then, then you put the worms in and you cover them up with a couple inches, too. Because the worms that you use to uh, start a worm bin are the type that live just underneath the soil surface um, in the natural world, so they want a little bit of darkness and cover.
0: Can I dig them out of my backyard, or are those okay? Do you have to have special worms?
1: You can get them out of your backyard. Um, it's usually a little bit easier to start with a bigger amount because we do produce a lot of food waste, mm-hmm. um, and you, you know, and but you can you can also do something like. I have a community garden plot, and I got a little bit of horse manure to put in the compost, and I put it be- beside my um, compost bin for a few days. And when I was ready to incorporate it into the compost pile, it was stuffed with worms. <laughs> so, you know, you could just grab a handful of that and sort of lure them and then, uh, and then harvest them for your worm bin. That could work, too.
0: Well, Bernard, I appreciate getting educated in this way. I'm looking at your website right now, uh, Eco Landscape, and I, I think we've probably got a chance to plug what you do because it looks like you're doing a lot of things that uh, people are going to be interested in.
1: Yes, I hope so. I'd be happy to answer any questions. I can be reached uh, through my website. It's Ecological Landscape Design, and I'm in Davis.
0: And, Bernard, any, any other resources you want to point us to because I, I imagine you're rather knowledgeable about some sites that our, our listeners will uh, you know, be keen to uh, check out?
1: Sure, to follow up on the information that we've been talking about, there are several really good ones. I can point you to Eco Landscape California, which is a nonprofit in the Sacramento region that does a lot of education on eco-friendly landscaping methods. Um, Within there, there's a really good guide called River Friendly Landscape Guidelines that walks you through the ideas of mulching and composting and pervious surfaces, as well as many other things. And another great resource is the California Center for Urban Horticulture's website. That's um, ccuh.edu, and it's linked to UC Davis. They have some 10 tips to decrease uh, stormwater quality problems. Um, They talk about the pervious paving. They give you information on how to decrease uh, your pesticide use around your home. because That's one of the top contaminants in our uh, urban creeks. So those, I would say, are the best ones, Eco Landscape California and the California Center for Urban Hort.
0: Those are uh, Well, very good. A lot. Very good. You know, and I'm, no one's going to believe me when I say this, but I'm going to go out now and turn over my compost pile. <laughs> I, was setting a, right. I was setting up to do it early this afternoon, but I didn't finish the job, but I, I will get to it hopefully later today.
1: Doesn't it smell so good?
0: It's very rewarding, and I encourage all of our listeners to take it up if they haven't already.
1: Yeah, it's black gold being produced (laughs) in the backyard. It's great. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun.
0: You're welcome. All right. Although we are certainly all in favor of doing things that make the environment better, we do have to occasionally invoke the law of unintended consequences. A couple stories coming out of Africa are a little disturbing. First one, briefly, is that some people are attributing the unrest in Central Africa, Nigeria, Chad, etc., to possibly the shrinkage of Lake Chad. Lake Chad borders Nigeria, Niger, Chad, and Cameroon. It's shrunk by 90% in the last 50 years, owing in part to poor rains, but also from drainage for irrigation. This has destroyed fishing villages and left desperate communities prey to lawless and religious extremism. And uh, in the great Rift Valley lakes of East Africa, there's some concerns over what's going on there. I know particularly Lake Victoria uh, is being drained off by Uganda versus, I guess it's Kenya. I I don't know. We need to look at that story in the future. Because when you drain water out of one place to irrigate another, well, uh, there's sometimes a price to be paid. Look at the Owens Lake in the Owens Valley, which is a huge source of irritating pollutants to the atmosphere because, well, there ain't no lake there anymore. The water's all been sent to Southern California. When I was a lad, I believe the fourth largest sea in the world was the Aral Sea. After the Soviets got the bright idea of shifting water away from the feeding rivers, it's all but disappeared. We've talked about that on the show. And of course, right here in California, Jerry Brown wants to ship more water out of the Sacramento Delta region and send that south. We presume so alfalfa growers continue to use 20% of California's water to produce a crop that generates 0.1% of the state's income. But at any rate, over in Africa, some people had the well-meaning idea of sending the people their mosquito nets. Malaria continues to be a great uh, killer in Africa, particularly of children. So the idea was take some, you know, insecticide-soaked mosquito nets, and ship them to Africa by the millions. In fact, by the hundreds of millions. And here's where the law of unintended consequences kicks in. People discovered that you could make fishing nets out of these mosquito nets. Of course, the mesh is so small as to not allow a mosquito to get in or out, which is way too small for proper fishing techniques. You're just basically scooping up everything in the water. But it turns out that all these nets being sent over to Africa have proven irresistible to the populace. They are now using them to fish. Oh, and by the way, they're not using them to sleep under. When you add in the fact that these nets are impregnated with insecticide, well, as you can imagine, there's a potential problem here. In fact, a piece in the New York Times by Jeffrey Gettleman quoted an Isabel Marcus da Silva, marine biologist at the Universidad Ludio in Mozambique, as saying these nets go straight out of the bag and into the sea. That's why the incidence for malaria is so high. The people don't use the nets for mosquitoes. They use them to fish. Now, of course, the various charities that have gotten this bright idea of sending all these mosquito nets to Africa are in denial that this is actually causing a problem. We'll try to learn more about this story and talk about it with maybe someone more authoritative in the future, but boy, this certainly is an unsettling report. Anyway, let's round up the segment and lighten the mood a little bit by talking about the frontiers of research into umami and kokumi, which, which no doubt a lot of you have been quite concerned about. But actually, we've talked about umami on this program before, and the, the little blurb in The Economist, the January 31st edition, really caught my eye because it rounded out a few details I was unaware of, which I'm now keen to share with you, dear listener. As you were all taught in school, of course, our tongue has several different types of taste buds. For years, we've been taught that you can sense sour sweet, salty, and bitter on our tongues. But for quite some time, the Japanese, at least, have been aware that that isn't the whole picture. And the Japanese still think there's more to this picture, which is evolving. But let's go back to 1908, when Kikune Akita, a chemist at what was then Tokyo Imperial University, now called the University of Tokyo, wanted to pin down this strange sort of ineffable taste that he identified in dashi, a soup stock made from tuna and seaweed. Being a chemist, Aikida was able to identify the compounds. They turned out to be glutamates. And he gave their effect on the tongue, a name that was compounded from the characteristics for delicious and taste. Which I gather, though, I'm no linguist, as Ronald Reagan used to say, uh, is umami. Now, it should be noted that Ikeda's ideas were disputed by scientists all over the world who stuck to sweet, sour, salty, and bitter, which is why I was taught that in school, and possibly you were too, dear listener. But what do you know? In recent years, when they discovered glutamate receptors on the tongue, guess who's been proven right for the past century plus? Now, the part I was really quite unaware of was the fact that Aikida thought that this new taste or this taste booster, which which could now be manufactured using glutamates, might be something to start a commercial company on. He did. The company was called Anjimoto. And starting in 1909, it began making and selling monosodium glutamate, MSG. This is now a huge flavoring business. Now, of course, my medical colleague and also former Radio Parallax guest, Dr. Dina Dell on his radio program used to love to talk about the MSG story or at least what happened when MSG was used in Chinese restaurants here in America. Some people started claiming that it gave them allergic reactions. And they developed a term for it, Chinese restaurant syndrome. Lawsuits ensued. In some cases, gigantic payments were made for Chinese restaurant syndrome. Now, when it turned out later that we actually have all of us... Receptors for glutamate on our tongue, meaning this is something that we're biologically hardwired to appreciate in food. The case that this was some sort of toxic additive was pretty much tossed out the window. And does that mean any of those recipients of large settlements from the courts gave the money back? We're we're pretty sure not. But the curious thickening of the plot here is that the Japanese now think there's another type of taste that we have... um, which are looking into. They've called it Kokumi, and has been the subject of scientific inquiry, at least in Japan, since the 1980s. This is not so familiar in the West. It's been described as being as much of a feeling as a taste, and is described variously as mouthfulness, thickness, hardiness. Garlic, onions, and scallops are all said to possess it. And they've even got a source of possible chemicals that induce this. They believe that uh, these are gamma glutamyl peptides, since they haven't found receptors for those on our tongue yet, well, there's some, you know, this remains a little unclear. But noted the economist, this has led to skepticism about whether kokumi is a real physiologic phenomenon. And in this, it is much like umami was in the early days. Now, on the umami front, recent research is showing that it can stimulate appetite. And some Japanese researchers have suggested a link between loss of sensitivity to umami in the elderly and their poor overall nutrition. This is possible. Now regarding kokumi, a gamma glutamyl peptide can be described as a chain of three linked amino acids. And experiments are now underway as whether they can manufacture a taste additive for our food. We really do in the future need to address a whole um, segment, I think, on the subject of food additives and flavors. It's a very secretive, bizarre industry and well worth probably 20 minutes of our time particularly since we do have a food science department here at UC Davis, which is a world-renowned. Re- world so we're going to look into that. All right, we're running long in the segment, so I don't have time to address the issue of Bendectin coming back to uh, help pregnant women that, uh, that are quite nauseated, but we will talk about that hopefully next week. And all this talk of food reminds us of a great chat we had some time back with the author of Twinkie Deconstructed. That was author Steve Ettlinger. That can be found on our website at radioparallax.com. If you didn't catch that, we suggest that you may want to do so. I also have another issue of Mental Floss in front of me, talking about uh, what goes into a corn dog, which certainly reminded me of the whole Twinkie saga. And you know what? We really do need to take a break, so let's defer that into the third segment, Mr. McMillan. Um, I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's talk about what's in your corn dog in segment three. You certainly want to stay tuned for that. <laughs>